Part three of With the American Ambulance Field Service in France Personal Letters of a Driver at the Front by Leslie Buswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part three. July fifteenth. Doc and I spent the day together. It was my duty day at Montauville, and although it poured, I enjoyed it very much. All we did and saw I shall leave to him to tell you about. So good night. God bless you all. Pont-a-Mousson, July 24, 1915. When I last wrote you, I little thought my next letter would follow such a tragedy as occurred on Thursday the 22nd. It is now two days ago, so in the comparative calm of perspective I must try to tell you the whole story from beginning to end. Thursday morning Schroeder and I went to visit the hospital on the other side of the Moselle, and there we were received by the Sister Superior, who personally showed us all over the building. The corridors are now used as wards, as every room but one in the large old convent has been hit by a shell. We got back to lunch about twelve o'clock, and Mignot, our indefatigable friend in the position of general servant, upbraided us for our unpunctuality, etc., we had hardly finished lunch when a shell burst some twenty meters away and we hurriedly took to the cellar while eleven more shells exploded all around our headquarters or caserne as we called it we then went for a round of inspection and found that the twelve shells had all fallen on our side of the road and were all within forty or fifty meters of us this made us feel pretty sure that the shells were meant for us or for our motors. Schroeder and I discussed the matter and came to the conclusion that we did not like the situation very much, and that if the Germans sent perhaps six shells all at once, we should many of us get caught. I was very tired, and about one-thirty went to sleep and slept until five-thirty when I went to dinner at the caserne the evening meal over an argument started about the merits of a periodical called le mot do you know it a kind of futurist paper after a rapid-fire commentary from one and then another of us which continued until about eight thirty schroeder and i decided to go to our rooms to bed we were walking home when i reminded him that he had been asked to tell four of our fellows who slept in a house nearby to be sure that no light could be seen through the shutters so turning back we rapped on the window and heard merry laughter and were greeted with a cheery invitation to join the nine who had gathered inside it seems one of them who had been on duty at montauville had managed to get some fresh bread and butter and jam and they were celebrating the event we had to decline their friendly hospitality, however, as we wanted to get some sleep. I had just got my boots off when whoosh, bang, 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 four huge shells burst a little way down the road toward our caserne. Thirty seconds after came two more, five minutes later six more, and then we heard a screaming woman ejaculating hysterically, C'est les Américains! Schroeder and I looked at each other without speaking. We hurriedly dressed and started to run to the caserne, women and soldiers shouting to us to say where we were. But rushing on through the fog, smoke, and dust, we reached headquarters. There we found the rest of the section in the cellar, and hurriedly going over those present, realized that two were absent, Mignot and the mechanic of the French officer attached to us. Out we ran, shouting, Mignot, Mignot! From the dust and smoke there staggered someone we did not know, blood flowing from head, legs, and arms. 
Oh, secure, oh, secure! It was the mechanic. Leaving him with the section to be dressed, we rushed madly through the fog-bound street, crying, Mignot, Mignot! Then suddenly, across the road, a shadow, a dark spot on the ground, two women quite dead, a boy dying, a man badly wounded, and farther on a still blue form. Quick, old man, listen, his heart! It was he, Mignot, and dead. Our loyal and devoted servant, who was almost the living incarnation of Kipling's Gunga Din. We rushed back to get stretchers and a car. Ogilvy got his car, and we got our stretchers out to take away the blessé. There were a few of us grouped about, some seven or eight, and a car, with the wounded just put on stretchers, when, look out! Bang! 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 Three more shells. We had already thrown ourselves on the ground, and then, finding we were still alive, feverishly loaded the car. Good God, I've stalled it, said the driver. Then the cranking. Would it never start? Try again. Oh, thank heaven, it was off. Hardly thirty seconds after, whish, bang, bang, two more came. We retired to a cellar for a few minutes, as the three dead could stay there while it was so terribly dangerous. At last we emerged and were about to lift Mignot's body when both arms moved. Was he alive, after all? No, it was only the electric wires he was lying on that had stimulated his muscles. The car turned the corner with the three dead, and we ran back to the caserne. There we found the rest of our section very shaken indeed. A shell had burst just outside of the house where the nine were making merry, and the violence of the impact had hurled all of them to the ground. Two feet nearer and the whole lot would have been killed. Schroeder and I decided we had better go back to bed, and we insisted that Ogilvy, who lived in the house so nearly destroyed, should come with us. We made him a sort of bed on the floor and turned in. As the light went out, a strange silence crept over us three, and I am sure that I was not the only one who was offering a silent prayer, for the wife and children of our devoted friend Mignot, and of gratitude for our miraculous escape from death. I must have dozed off when I was awakened by the whole house shaking, and six more terrific explosions followed, and then still six more. Should we go out again? No, all the rest were certainly in cellars and out of danger. About two o'clock a tremendous attack woke us up, and for an hour the whole place shook and re-echoed with the sound of artillery, hand-grenade, and rifle fire. We stayed awake expecting a call, but none came till five o'clock, when we were told that the médecin de Vésinière had ordered us to leave pont a mousson immediately. We dressed and packed and got around to the caserne to find that nearly everyone had already left and that all thought Ogilvy dead. Why? we asked. His house had been completely destroyed. Even a 280 shell had burst in the cellar itself. Two shells had burst in our caserne, and all around was wreckage and mess. We got some coffee at a little café, and being on Montauville duty, went up there, a sad and depressed being. That afternoon, about one o'clock, a shell burst right in the middle of the street at Dex, killing one soldier and badly wounding four more. I was not far away. I took them to the hospital at Dieu-Loire, where I found the rest of the section getting themselves installed in their new quarters. In the evening we went at eight o'clock to poor Mignot's funeral. Sad and horribly gruesome it was, 
imagine a little chapel with four coffins in front of a small altar one of them with many flowers and of oak mignots the other three just pine wood the ordinary war coffin the governor came and i shall not forget the dim scene the priest who intoned the latin burial service out of tune and the choir consisting of one man who sang badly and as loud as he could and a congregation of silent mourners every note every word as it re-echoed through the chapel seemed like the cry of despair of france a small but pitiful note of the anguish of this country over at last the coffins were shuffled out of the little chapel and we were allowed to follow them to the bridge to st martin where they were buried in a cemetery constantly upheaved by german shells horrible 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 that is all i can write there had not yet been time to find rooms at diolard and i was asked if i minded sleeping in pont a mousson no not a bit so i spent last night there alone and perhaps for the last time in our little room schroeder's and mine of which i once sent you a photo he was at x on night duty this morning i am sitting in that room at the window writing this all's quiet the sky cloudless and blue birds are singing the red roses in the garden blossom in the sun and the peace of heaven is really on earth around me then comes the memory of thursday night a vision of another world doc will probably arrive here to-day as we had to wire him at once and so you may get this letter next mail pont a mousson july twenty sixth nineteen fifteen since friday things have been topsy-turvy our section leader was away andre paul and glover who is in charge in his absence naturally feeling responsible for the safe-keeping of our many ambulances in this division of the army thought best to evacuate pont a mousson of course the point of virtue in the idea was to avoid the possible loss of some of our men as well as cars which would be a tragedy for the french wounded but our section is here to give its best service and i can't help feeling that it is better not to lower the standard of work and efficiency by retiring to blank perhaps i have rather forcibly expressed this idea but a number of the men here are of the same opinion i sleep at pont a mousson as usual and of course schroeder does too and now three others also i want to point out that the moral effect of seeing us about this place is very great on the soldiers encamped here and if you could have heard their condolences and seen the look of pleasure on their faces when schroeder and i walked down the street last night you would realize that what little extra risk it involves is negligible compared to its beneficial effect however when salisbury returns we may have to leave for good dear old pont a mousson i suppose you saw in the official french report of the twenty ninth that we had been shelled it meant something to you then i am sure but you little realized that it was our little group of ambulances they were hammering at our whole section has been cited by order of the division and last night the official wording and so forth was sent to us it is really a very great compliment and i am so pleased i expect salisbury will get decorated as head of the section here is a translation of it american ambulance automobile section a y composed of volunteers friends of our country has been continually conspicuous for the enthusiasm courage and zeal of all its members who regardless of danger have worked without rest to save our wounded whose affection and gratitude they have gained
Poor Mignot, life at Pont-a-Mousson will be very different without him. Our mechanic, who was wounded, is, I now hear, to have his left arm amputated. What a real tragedy the 22nd was for us. The more we think about the evening, and as further details come to light, the more we marvel that we were not all killed. It is strange, too, how those who one felt would behave well did, and I am proud of my friends in the section. P.S. We hear that a German captain, a prisoner in Paris, said that if any American ambulance man was captured prisoner, he would be shot. Nice lot of people, aren't they? July 29, 1915. I had a very interesting day yesterday. As you will have seen by official reports, the German presented us again with some twenty to thirty big shells on Monday night, and although I was at Pont-a-Mousson, I was in a good cellar. About three people were killed, but one woman was wounded just down the road, and the doctor and I had to run out and bring her in. We were sufficiently excited not to think of more shells, and as she could run too, and did so with a vengeance, it was not a long promenade. Yesterday I went with Schroeder to lunch with the battery who had entertained us at dinner on the 14th July. They had moved their position nearer the Germans. I have rarely enjoyed a day more. The sun was glorious, the views perfect, and the woods enchanting, though shells bursting in the air took the place of birds. We had a splendid lunch, and afterwards went out and visited the numerous guns and trenches. I took many wonderful photos, cetadira they ought to be. I saw about five different sized guns, and then we advanced to the trenches. Finally we reached the first line, where silence reigned supreme except for the occasional bang of a rifle or the intermittent explosion of shells. We went to an advanced post, several meters in front of first line, and there, carefully looking through a hole, I saw the German trenches. I then expressed a wish to be able to photo them, and I was shown a place where I could stand up and quickly get a snapshot. I regretted having made the wish, but I saw they were looking at me, and I didn't intend showing a white liver, so up I jumped and took two. The bullets did not whistle all around me as I suppose I ought to write, and although I was successful in taking the pictures, I do not intend to try the game again. In fact, I have now seen all the trench life I want to, and do not mean to visit them further. The point is that if I should be killed or wounded on a sightseeing expedition, it would not be very creditable, and we run quite enough risk when on duty. Strange to say, I felt far less nervous in the first-line trenches than when on service at Pont-en-Mousson or Montauville. In fact, I felt quite a sense of security in those splendidly built trenches, while in a town the shelling is so much more dangerous. And when you have to go out into it sitting on that little ford jostling its way over the bumpy road, the sensation is not a very comfortable one. However, as I told you before, I am a fatalist now absolutely. We made our way slowly home to pont a mousson and there saw shells bursting over a little town in the valley, and I got a photo of it. I am tired, so good night. July 30th. All your letters from July 4th to July 15th have just arrived, and also a very nice one from Marconi. It was a great joy to me to know of your success and of your glorious effort. Things are gradually quieting down here, but we have had a dreadful time. 
However, I am glad the work we are doing is so well worth the cost. One has little time and less inclination, in the presence of such great tragedy, to consider the virtue of one's personal service, but somehow it is good to remember that although one has done work at the front, it was without pay, titles, etc. I acknowledge that I look forward to October, when I plan to go back for a bit. I shall have had four months' service at the front without a rest, and although I can, I hope keep going another eight or ten weeks i feel that without some respite the winter would finish me if the germans omitted to do so i find myself feeling an intense though futile and unphilosophic resentment at my physical condition the not being able to eat enough to keep always at top speed and of course one can never allow even a shadow much less a mention of one's own problems to appear the personal equation practically doesn't exist here. August 2nd. Salisbury, who has returned to us, has supported our little group, who objected to the evacuation of pont a -Masson. He found us a very fine suitable house, an esthete would go mad in it, German and bad German at that, and we were told that no shell had fallen near it for nine months, so we entered with confidence. The telephone was established, and after changing the furniture about, altering a few details, and, I confess it, bringing in a few flowers from the garden, we found ourselves almost magnificently installed. Yesterday, the 1st of August, the French violently bombarded a town where a German regiment was en repos, and when I arrived at Montevilla for day duty at 7.30 yesterday morning, I was told that all the towns around here were expecting a bombardment in revenge. Needless to say, it was correct. About ten o'clock I had a call to go to Aubert saint pierre for two seriously wounded, and when I arrived there the médecin-chef told me that if I got them to the hospital quickly they would have a chance of living. So number ten tooted off down the hill, at what the plain warrior would term a hell of a pace. As I entered Montavilla I saw no one about, but as I passed a poste de Resecour, a doctor rushed out and told me to take two more if I had room. I noticed they filled my car with extraordinary speed, and it was not necessary to tell me that Montavilla was being bombarded. My stretchers filled, I set off again for my destination with the four seriously wounded. I decided to take a different road, which was quicker, though supposed to be more dangerous, and two big shells fell on the road I did not take while I passed. I began to think myself lucky. As I entered Pont-a-Masson I saw no one about, a bad sign, and on turning to go to Dioloir, where we took the wounded, I saw a huge shell explode two hundred meters down the road I was to drive along. Had the ambulance been empty, or with only slightly wounded, I should have waited, of course, but under the circumstances my duty was to go on as fast as I could. I noticed ahead of me three large motor trucks, and the thought struck me, what if those are hit and contain ammunition? I was ten yards away when, bang, I was half-blown out of my seat, a shell had landed on the motor truck. Hardly believing I was not hit, I increased my pace and emerged from the smoke and blackness going at a good clip, safe and sound, but shaken. I deposited my wounded and started to return, but was stopped and told that the road was not passable, as thirty large two-tens had fallen on it, and trees were all over the place. 
I forgot to mention the truly gruesome part of the tale. When I arrived at Dieulois, I noticed that everybody was pointing at my car. I supposed it was because we looked so smoke-grimed, but on arrival at the hospital several people ran out to me with curious expressions, and I then got down to discover what was troubling them. One of the poor fellows had thrown himself off the stretcher, and all of his bandages had slipped, and a trail of red was flowing from the car and leaving a pool on the ground. I got back to our bureau about twelve o'clock by a roundabout way, and had lunch, and went up about twelve-thirty to Montevilla again. While at lunch the shells continued to fall at fairly regular intervals on the road. Suddenly those nearest the window threw themselves on the floor, an action familiar to us constantly under shell-fire, and before you could sneeze the lot of us did likewise, and we heard an éclat fly over the house. Laughing, we got up, we were about eight hundred meters from where the shells were bursting, and I went out into the street to see where the éclat had fallen. There it was on the road, weighing about three and a half pounds, it was hot to the touch, three and a half pounds thrown eight hundred meters. I have kept it as a paperweight, as a little luncheon incident, it is entertaining. Nothing of great interest happened during the afternoon, except that I broke my foot-break, and to-morrow must put in a new one. After dinner, being off duty, I went to bed about eight o'clock. Schroeder left yesterday to go and see his brother, who is wounded. He returns in about a week. Meanwhile, I am alone, and don't like it. At one-thirty o'clock this morning I woke up. Something was wrong. Bang, 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 bang! pont a mousson being bombarded and badly fifteen shells falling in three minutes i counted and the firing continued for an hour and a half with intervals i got dressed prepared to descend into the cellar if the shells came too near my house and then about six fifteen the bombardment stopped i left the house to find several fires started around the town they had shelled with incendiary shells as well as high explosives as I got back to our new headquarters, imagine my surprise to find a huge shell-hole two yards from the house in the drive itself. The house never bombarded for nine months. All the fellows, however, were safe, and our breakfast was a jocular one, for we could not help seeing the funny side of it all. August 3rd. Just a few more lines as one of our section is returning to America, and will take these letters over, and you should get them about August 18th, with luck. I hope the lecture was a financial success besides a personal one. If all those people in America only knew what this section and our work mean to the soldiers here, money would not be long in coming. No one can realize what our little group does for the mutilated wounded, but if anyone doubts it, I wish he or she could see the grateful thanks in the eyes of the wounded soldier as he is taken from our ambulance and put into a fairly comfortable bed, with doctors ready to attend him. Let him see the poor soldier, hardly able to move, insist on taking your hand, and let him hear that whispered, Merci, mon camarade and let him talk to the soldiers newly returned from the trenches or just about to enter there. Let him hear that smiling greeting and see those hands waving, Bonjour, camarade. Let him hear what the officers say. Then, if he has had any doubts, he could have them no longer. 
I don't claim that I personally am doing anything, but I do say that this section of 25 men has done more to cement the love for America with the troops around here than any possible action the USA could take in this war. And I believe that the same fact is true of our service in the North and South fronts. Everyone should realize this, and I hope that any of my friends to whom you read this letter will bear our field service in mind if they hear of anyone wishing to be truly philanthropic. The hospital itself cannot go on indefinitely supporting us, as they are very short of funds and have a great undertaking on hand to feed and keep up the Nuiyi and Juili hospitals. Doc tells me they must get two million francs to keep things going till next spring. Only a small portion of that money, of course, could come to our field service, so your effort is for a great purpose. I must tell you what happened to the wounded before our little cars came here. We carried over 1,800 last week, and more than 7,500 during July. They were picked up in the trenches, bois le prêtre etc., when they could be got at, sometimes, if lucky, an hour after, and sometimes five or six hours or never. The Brancardiers, chiefly artists before the war, do this work, a terrible job, and very, very dangerous, as the wounded are often between the German and French trenches, and they have to creep out at night and drag them in. Well, these wounded are carried on Brancards, stretchers, down the hill from the trenches, probably a journey of some thirty minutes to the Refuge des Blessés, still in the wood, and there a primitive dressing to stop bleeding is put on. Then they are jostled on, 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 till they arrive at one of the postes de secure where our light little cars can go. These are the Aubert Saint-Pierre, Clos-Bois, and Monteville. Here, in former days, they were redressed, and if there were room, stayed in the little shelter, or if not, they had to lie outside till a horse-wagon came to fetch them. Sometimes they would have to wait many hours before their turn came, and even the most urgent cases would not get away and arrive at the hospital for a long time. Hundreds of soldiers died thus. Now, with our little cars, an urgent case is at the hospital ready for operation in twenty minutes at the most, and generally about ten to fifteen, no matter what time of the day or night. That is why these soldiers around here are so grateful. I have seen cars go up to Aubert Saint-Pierre to fetch an urgent case when the driver knew the road was being shelled, and the soldiers who see our cars tooting up the hill wonder and say, Volontaire? I have got a call, and so must stop, for before I could get back, the friend who is to take this letter would doubtless have had to leave. One and one-half hours later. I still have a few minutes, so I will continue. As you know, I almost never reread what I write, but I have run over this letter, and although every word I say is accurate and unexaggerated, I don't want you to imagine that the French Red Cross is not efficient, but they cannot afford cars everywhere with drivers and so forth. That is why our section here is so useful. The horror of the whole war is growing on me day by day, and sometimes when I have got into my bed or am trying to get a few hours sleep on a stretcher, every other night I am on duty and so cannot undress, the horrors of blood, broken arms, mutilated trunks, and ripped open faces, etc., haunt me, and I feel I can hardly go through another day of it. 
but all that is soon forgotten when a call comes and you see those bandaged soldiers waiting to be taken to a hospital i almost love my old car it was in the battle of the marne and i often find myself talking to it as i pick my way in pitch darkness past carriage guns or reinforcements if one does not quickly become an expert driver one would have no car to drive for it is almost impossible to see five yards ahead and it is at night that the roads are full of horse carts and soldiers End of part three.